0: What are you certain about? What are you sure of? Our world is so uncertain. What can you stake everything in your life on? In the late 1990s, Truman Burbank was the star of a successful TV show on a movie. It was called The Truman Show. Except Truman Burbank didn't know it. Unknown to him, beginning at his birth, his entire life was taking place inside of a massive television set. Everything around him, including the people, including his wife, were all made up. It was all set, set up, so that the whole world could watch the life of this ordinary everyman unfold. Everything around Truman was controlled, except for Truman. And as the movie goes on, Truman becomes suspicious of people and events around him. And eventually, he escapes. And what that meant was he reached a place In his world, he was never meant to get to. A dome with a nearby staircase with an exit sign. And if he opened that door, he would leave the make-believe world of Truman, Truman's show, for the real world. That the whole world was watching live where the whole world lived. And dramatically, if you've seen it, the creator, the producer of the show, he breaks in. He tries to persuade Truman not to leave. Why? Because he tells Truman, there is no more truth in the real world than in the fake one Truman had lived in. Is that true? The movie leaves you wrestling with big questions. For his whole life, Truman had no idea his entire life, his very existence, everything he lived for was based on a lie. Is this world nothing more than a Truman show? What can you be certain about? In an uncertain world, we are, or as Christians are actually those who make a terribly, at least to the world's perspective, arrogant claim. We have certainty about the future, about our book, about our eternal destiny. What are you certain about this morning? For help, this morning we go to Second Peter again. 2 Peter 1, 12-21, where the apostle is writing in view of the end of his own life, of the world, trying to give certainty to Christians who were tempted to doubt, who were tempted to believe that they had been deceived about the Christian faith, about the very end of everything. Turn to 2 Peter 1, 12-21. This is the word of God. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right. As long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may able at any time to recall these things. We did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, "This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased." We ourselves heard this very voice. Born from heaven, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's the main point. Jesus is certainly returning. Jesus is certainly returning. So pay close attention to his inspired word until he does. He is certainly returning. So pay close attention to his inspired word until he does. Three certainties in this text this morning a certain reminder, a certain glory, a certain word. A certain reminder, a certain glory, a certain word. He is certainly returning. Pay close attention to his inspired word until he does. Let's see first a certain reminder. Verses 12 through 15. Verses 12 through 15. Have you ever listened to someone giving a talk? Maybe it was a sales pitch. Maybe it was a political speech. And you're listening to them say whatever it is they're saying. But what you're really wondering is, what do they really want? What are they really after? If you were to ask that of Peter, he would say, and you would actually answer, he wants me to be certain of the gospel, of the gospel's power. He wants me to grow in godliness in light of the coming kingdom of Christ. Peter has no hidden agenda. And that's what's behind that word, therefore, in verse 12. Because I want this for you to be fruitful, to enter the kingdom, to not fall away, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. The qualities being what we read in verses 5 through 7 last week. Even though, now get this, You know them and are established in the truth. As a child, to be honest with you, it was amazing how much I knew and how little my parents knew. So they'd tell me something. Maybe they'd try to teach me something on an off day for them. And I would politely inform them, I know. I know that already. I know. What perplexed me was instead of them being amazed at this incredible child that they had, who knew everything, they would tell me things again and again. They'd even try to teach me. I hope you see the absurdity of that. Kids, especially. I didn't know everything as a child. My parents did need to tell me certain things again and again. Again. I think Peter actually means it when he says, you know this. You're established in this truth. And at the same time, he knows they need to be reminded. Because who are we as Christians? We are a people who do easily forget what we know. We get gospel amnesia. We forget The good news, we know. Peter does not say, I'm going to teach you something new. He says, I'm going to remind you of what you know. Because you will be tempted to forget it. Or it will become so familiar, it becomes like an old hat. Question for you, for me, is will we be that little immature kid that I was, who constantly said, I know that already, I know, I know. Or will we be those who love being reminded, who know we need to be reminded? We do need to be taught what we don't know, but we also need to be reminded of what we do. You do realize that reminding is a lot of what we do here every single week. You hear the gospel again and again. You hear of Christ's resurrection again and again. You hear this world is not your home again and again. Glory is coming. You know this. You desperately need to be reminded of it. You need to be reminded it is certain Because we are sojourning in a world that is constantly telling us other things are more certain. And what's amazing is that you don't even have to get creative in figuring out ways to remember. God has provided for us the means to help us remember what we already know. We're doing that right now. I mean, what's your posture? What's your preparation to hear the word of God? Now, I know you because I know me. You walk in here every week and you have absorbed all kinds of different certainties from the world and from your mind and you need to be reminded of what you know. So come here eager. Come here having prayed and prepared. Come here early. You know, that communicates that this isn't just something I'm going to consume and then leave. I'm coming here to serve others and to be prepared. Make provision for this day the Lord gives you to be reminded. And built up in what is certain. Peter wants you to be certain about massive truth because, in part, he knows he doesn't have much time. Verse 13: as long as I'm in this body, it's right for me to stir you up by way of reminder. Peter sees his body as a temporary dwelling, it's like a tent. And as long as he's in the tent he's going to stir you up by way of reminder if you're trusting Christ you know something of what this stirring up is like you hear someone share their testimony when they've been saved and they're they're baptized and you're you're stirred afresh by the power of the gospel you hear a sermon on the glories of Christ and his his work on the cross and it it gives you fresh joy in Christ, fresh resolve to fight sin. It's like if you've been married for a while, you and your spouse go to a wedding and maybe you're in a rut, maybe things are bad and you hear the glories of message, uh, the glories of, of marriage proclaimed at that wedding and your marriage takes on new life as you're reminded of the glory of your relationship. You're stirred up. Recently in the national championship basketball game, uh, college in the United States, there was a team down by almost 20 points at halftime. That's a lot in basketball. It was basically unthinkable that they would ever come back. Slowly but surely in the second half, they came back and they won was watching recently an interview with the coach of that team and those who were interviewing him said, what did you say to them at halftime to cause them to come back? He simply said, I told them you're not being who you are. And I reminded them who we are as a team. You're playing nervous and with fear instead of aggressively. You're letting them set the pace. You're, you're reacting, you're not playing our game. Freshly stirred and reminded of who they were as a team, they came back and they won. Peter has little time and with it, he wants to stir you up, not with the new stuff, with the old stuff. What's glorious about the gospel, it's it's so powerful, it never gets old. There's always fresh power. Power to save, power to grow. And Peter wants you to know it because he's about to die. He's about to put his body off soon. The brief time in the tent is about to be over. How does he know? The Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to him. Now, was this a special revelation that the risen Christ gave to Peter? It's possible. I think more probable is... The end of John's gospel, John 21, 18, where the risen Christ, before he ascended, prophesied to Peter, When you are old, you will stretch out your hands, someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. So the crucified one, Jesus, prophesied to Peter, he would die apparently by crucifixion. Peter's getting older. He's in prison. Life is bad in the Roman Empire. He knows he's going to die soon. It's interesting, isn't it, that Peter does not say the risen Christ promised me health and wealth. No, he promised him he would die on a cross. And Peter believed Jesus. And he's not afraid. He's filled with faith. And he's laboring for the church in light of the word of the risen Christ. How closely do you listen to someone when they're on their deathbed? At this point in my life, I've now for several times been with family members on their deathbed. And if you've done that, you know the quiet of the room where everyone is sitting there, standing there listening to what they, they might say. No one wants to miss, I love you. Or I'm proud of you one more time. No one wants to miss some some dying wishes, they might say. When Jenny's dad's mother, her paternal grandmother, we, we called her Mama. That's the kind of words we use in the South, the United States. When Mama was dying, she told Jenny's dad, Jim, do everything you can to keep peace between your siblings. There had been conflict. And at the expense of forfeiting money that was his right in the inheritance, Jim did just that because those were his mother's dying words, her dying wishes. These are Peter's dying words. These are his dying wishes to stir you up, to remind you of what is certain. Do you see what the divine power of God has done to Peter? As he approaches death, the man who was a coward in the face of a servant girl, so certain of his future in Christ that he is concerned for others, for you, for your growth, for their affections, that they keep going until the day of the kingdom of Christ. What is he after? The eternal good of others doesn't promise health and wealth. The word he's received is, you will die. And he's not despaired because those came from the risen Christ. Peter knows his future is bound up with Christ and he's just free to keep losing his life, keep giving it away until he dies so that his life might be used to stir up others. And he's not going to even be done when he dies. Verse 15. He's going to make every effort after his departure. So that they will be able at any time. To recall these things. What does the world tell you? Get as much out of your life. Before you die. What is the gospel's power? It It frees you to use your life. To serve others. Even after you die what are you doing not just to prepare for death but to prepare for others good after your death the certainty of what you believe as a christian frees you to give your life away to lose your life such that even when your life is over you're still serving others after you die peter's going to do that by writing this letter Remember back in verse 5, Peter told us to make every effort basically to pursue godliness. What's Peter doing? Making every effort so that we'll recall these things. What effort are you making to recall these things? God's power, His coming kingdom, your need to grow in godliness. There's so much at stake in what we're recalling, what we're bringing to our minds. And if we're not certain of these things, we will not remember them. We will not work to recall them. God's grace is seen in the provisions he gives us as a forgetful people. The church, the Lord's Supper, the word, the spirit, great promises, all of those given us in part. That we might remember. You're like me. You you know the gospel. But you need to remember it. You've got to relearn it. All the time. I wonder if you're hearing this sermon this morning. As someone who is down. By a whole lot of points. At halftime. Victory seems nowhere in sight. I'm not going to tell you anything new. I'm going to tell you to remember God has given you everything by his divine power that you need for life and godliness. You are united to Christ. You are a partaker of his nature. Don't look inside yourself. Look to Jesus Christ and his all-sufficient merit and power and presence with you by his spirit. If you are pursuing godliness by the power of God, if suffering has come in your life, you are on the right track, not the wrong one. This is a certain reminder. Peter writes this from prison, certain of his death and certain that his life has not gone off course, but that it's on the right one. Godliness is the path. It is the way in this life. Don't let Anything undermine your certainty in that be stirred up by this certain reminder and be confident in the certain word that's our second point a certain word verses 16 through 18 a certain word how many of you believe in conspiracy theories don't you dare raise your hand keep it to yourself this point i thought about the fact that no one raised their hand then i thought maybe somebody will you can talk to me if you do what are conspiracy theories they allege or hold out that some small group is responsible for some major event in the world and really the problem is is that people that believe in conspiracy theories never understand that they believe in a conspiracy theory Do you realize how much of the world right now looks at us that way? We're the ones who've been fooled. The world sees us like it sees Truman Burbank, totally deceived, letting out that deception. We're the ones who've fallen for this great deception. This small group of men got together, came up with this story about a delusional man who was crucified, and he got up from the dead, and somehow he would return and bring the end of everything. They might be respectful about it. Some aren't, but they pity us. We come here together every week and then we live in those six days in between as if this matters, it's true. They think it's fine if it helps us get through our lives of the world. But the resurrection and the return of Christ, laughable, crazy. Do we believe in a conspiracy? Are we the foolish ones or are we the wise ones? Peter wants you to be certain. Verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, fables, fairy tales. We did not rely on those when we, the apostles, made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So everything Peter has said so far only makes sense if Jesus really is coming back. And he's saying that the return of the Lord Jesus, his powerful coming, is not made up by men. It's not a cleverly devised story. No, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, one of the nerdy things I find interesting is legal theory and strategy. Hear me out. How a lawyer develops strategy in trying a case. So in the United States, unlike much of the world, criminal trials are done in front of a jury. So fellow citizens who will be the ones who render the verdict on the trial. And they listen to evidence from the prosecution and the defense. And the lawyers aim to put up on the stand credible witnesses. And if they can, to discredit certain witnesses that aren't for their case. And if a witness is discredited, the jury won't believe their testimony. There was a very famous murder case in the United States when I was growing up involving a very famous athlete named O.J. Simpson, who was put on trial for murder. And the defense, whether you agreed with it or not, were very effective in undermining the credibility of the prosecution's witnesses. Is Peter, are the apostles, credible witnesses? Do you believe them? Because we make judgments about eyewitnesses all the time. I've said this before. The only reason you know where you were born is because you believe your parents. They saw it and you trust them. How was Peter an eyewitness? He says, we saw the majesty of Christ. We saw his glory and he points to the transfiguration. That's what he's referring to in verse 17. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the mountain. He was transfigured. He showed them his glory. They saw Jesus of Nazareth, their teacher, their friend, in his true glory. And they heard the voice of the Father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Matthew recounts this in his gospel. Matthew 17, the father announcing his pleasure in and his love for the son. And what does Peter want? He wants you to be certain of that glory, that they saw it. That the glory of Jesus was not just in the fact that his form, his appearance changed He went from looking ordinary to extraordinarily glorious. The glory was also perceived in the announcement of his identity from the Father as the beloved son, not just physical appearance, but true identity. He doubles down in verse 18. We ourselves heard this voice from heaven for we were with him on that holy mountain. They saw the glory. They heard of the glory. You do know what they did as a result, right? They fell on their faces, terrified. Jesus had to say, have no fear to touch them. They knew Jesus. They were terrified of Jesus in his majestic state. So just as an aside, it's why we need to be glorified In the future, our sinful bodies cannot bear the weight of seeing the glorious Christ, the risen Christ. But when we're transformed, transfigured into future glory brought about by the resurrection, we will see him in all of his majesty and live to enjoy it. Some people have argued Peter didn't write this book. Someone else wrote it. But if that were the case, you do see this book would be a deception, not a certainty. Peter's putting his credibility on the line as an eyewitness to say he saw this. That's not true. It's a hoax. Why did Peter point to the transfiguration to give credibility to the apostles message that there would be a powerful coming of Christ? Well, there were false teachers who were denying Jesus Christ would return. And Peter wants you to be convinced this was not a man-made myth. It was revelation from God confirmed by the glory that they saw on the mountain and the revelation of God's voice on the mountain announcing who he was. So he's saying the certainty of the glory we saw points to the glory that the whole world will see when he returns. I wonder if the certain glory of Christ... The glory of the eternally preexistent Son, whom the Father is well-pleased in, has become common to you. Remember so well when in January, we were able to go see um, Novak Djokovic play tennis. And after the match, we went over to where he would come out of the locker room and you should have seen the frenzy of people. They were doing all that they could to get a picture with him, to get an autograph, just wanting to be near him. I wasn't innocent. I put my daughter on my shoulders, tried to get that autograph and that picture. But obviously, I've thought about that. He's just a man, he's like us. But there's such a fascination with him or another celebrity's glory. But it's all man made athletes get older new athletes come along Peter saw glory that can only be revealed from heaven glory announced by the father glory that caused him to hide himself in fear and that certain glory points us forward to future glory what glory impresses you what glory are you chasing with your life Do you know what the Lord Jesus Christ did after he revealed his glory? He went down that mountain to the cross. Peter, the same one who was terrified of Jesus in his glory, was also terrified of being identified with Jesus when he went to the cross. This world is filled with people who seek the wrong glory. People like you and me who want glory for ourselves that will not last. Jesus, who has real glory, comes from heaven. He failed it in human flesh and he obeyed God the Father all the way to his crucifixion with common criminals. He did this glorious act for others to save, to give his life for sinners who keep chasing the lesser glories of this world. He was humiliated on the cross that we might taste and partake in his glory. But he did not stay humiliated. In his death, God raised him to prove to the world what he announced on the mountain. This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Have you listened to him? Have you repented and believed in the risen and reigning Christ? He calls you to freely come to him in faith. Have you heard all of that before? Is it so familiar to you that it is uninteresting to you? Or do you see the glory of it afresh even this morning? Friends, this is not a cleverly devised myth. This is news revealed from heaven because the story is so good and true, we would never make it up. Who will you believe? What glory allured you this last week? How much time are you giving to meditating, remembering the glory of Christ? You need to be stirred up. Christ upholds the whole universe. By the word of his power, untold angels are worshiping Christ right now. Nothing is happening in the world apart from the power of Christ. When he returns, kings will hide themselves under rocks to hide themselves from his glory and judgment. We do not serve a weak Christ, a small Christ, Any glory that's capturing your heart or my heart in comparison to Christ is so small and insignificant. What are you looking forward to? When's the last time you meditated on the glory of the returning Christ? Why not think about it now? You're going to see him. You're going to savor him in his glory. His glory will not underwhelm you. And you know what else? He's going to delight in seeing you. Who you will be on that day will be his work. Artists love to see the painting they've created. How much more the risen Christ seeing the finished work of his redeemed child. Peter saw his glory. We will see his glory. And what is glorious as well is the certainty he will see us. The bride made ready for the groom, and he will delight in what he sees. That's all way too good to be true. Except it's true. It's not a myth. The sun has been revealed from heaven. The sun will be revealed from heaven. A certain glory. Finally, a certain word. Verses 19 through 21. The revealed glory of Christ gives credibility to the coming glory of Christ. And it's the transfigured Christ, verse 19, that more fully confirms the prophetic word. Well, what does this mean? The prophetic word is the Old Testament scriptures, particularly the prophetic word about the coming day of our Lord, his day of judgment and salvation. I I thought about this a lot. I don't think Peter is saying that the prophetic word of the Old Testament is more certain than the transfiguration. Both are trustworthy. Both are reliable. The transfiguration more fully confirms it. Again and again, the prophetic word of the Old Testament prophets is this. The day of the Lord is coming. And the transfiguration showed the Messiah in his glory. And it thus more fully confirmed the prophetic word of the Old Testament prophets that the Lord would come in glory. False teachers were saying it's not true. He won't come bodily. But Peter is saying it's literally true. And the transfiguration, the glory there confirms that. So what does that mean? What's the practical takeaway? Verse 19. Pay attention to the scriptures as a lamp shining in a dark place. The certain word of the scripture is like water in a desert. It is light in darkness. Uh, Last August, I was in Erbil, Iraq, and the electricity goes on and off occasionally, but not enough to be totally surprised when it happens. And I was preaching, and suddenly the electricity went off, and they expected me to keep going. So I am thankful for an iPhone. I just took it out and I used my iPhone and Thank goodness I could see what was under that light, but you can imagine I needed to see what I had prepared. Light shining changes everything. Scriptures are light in a dark world of moral confusion. They're light shining in our lives. They expose us. They heal us. They show us the way forward, especially in this day when we live by faith and not by sight. When we're living by what we hear, not by what we see. We need the certain word. So Peter says the transfigured glory of Christ assures you of the coming of Christ as prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. So pay attention. But for how long? Until the day dawns. The day known to the Lord. The day of his coming. When redemption's work is over. That morning star rising in our hearts is... It comes from Numbers 24 when... We have that prophecy of Balaam that a star will arise out of Jacob. Jesus, the risen Jesus, picks up on that in Revelation. I am the morning star. What does it mean? It'll be a day when we will no longer need the prophetic word. We will see clearly. We will be beautified, purified as the church. Pay attention to the scriptures until that day. I mean, just think about the fact that we live in a world where we need a Bible. That before sin ever came into the world, God had to speak to Adam and Eve to tell them what the world around them is like. How much more do we need a Bible now that sin has come into the world? How strange that the world tells us that the Bible deceives us when it's the Bible that's telling us everything that's deceptive about the world. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you know a glad joy and submission to the word of God? Do you feel the joy that God graciously gave us a book? That it's a firm foundation. Cling to the book. Read it. Meditate on it. Know it. And be certain of it. Why? Verse 20. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Peter is saying that the the prophecies that we have of the coming day of the Lord, of the Messiah, aren't private interpretations. They are not like the myths, man-made. How do we know that? Verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. A, A massive text on the inspiration of Scripture, on its trustworthiness. Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3. Here's Peter telling us not what it is, like Paul did, but how it is inspired. It's not from men. It's not a private, personal interpretation. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, dear friends, despite what people tell you, not every interpretation in Bible study is a right one. The Scriptures have been given to us and interpreted for us by the Spirit. Yes, men wrote in their own personalities, their different contexts, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have a divine book. We have a human book. But we can be confident we have certainty in the revelation here about who we are, who God is, what Jesus has done and will do in the future. We have everything we need for this life and for godliness. This is not a conspiracy. That's what Peter wants you to see. He doesn't want you to think for one moment you've been deceived about the returning certainty of the glory of Christ and the certainty of the word until he comes. If you stake your life on this word, if you live your life through the lens of the word, you're not living in the Truman Show. You are certainly seeing everything as it really is. And you can be certain of that, not just appearance, but reality. And the coming day when Christ will come in glory and he will determine the destiny of every person on the planet is a certainty. You can be sure of it. The prophetic word tells us of it. As you listen to Peter, as you listen to the voices of the apostles and the voices of this world, who do you think is telling the truth? And who do you think is the liar? Be certain of the glory of the beloved son. Be certain of his word that testifies to him. Be certain the risen Christ will come. And even if before that your life ends up forsaken and unremembered, even in prison, be certain you will gain a rich entrance into the kingdom of Christ when he comes.